And we're back with a new episode of In the Ring with Acacia Kumon. Nice to talk to all of you from wherever you are listening. Back with a new episode today. We'll have a couple coming out before the end of the year and recapping what's been a very busy season in the world of horse racing. We just had the Breeders' Cup a couple of weeks ago. A lot of the big sales, Keeneland and Fazek Tipton um, in the fall as well. Some European sales still coming up too. And uh, we'll talk about a little bit of a different type of sales category on today's show, which I think will be really fun. And we'll also have an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the big horses that we see staying in training for next year and looking ahead to 2024, potentially heading off to the breeding shed, and we'll see their progeny on the racetrack in a couple of years. Before we get into today's show, I want to say a big thank you to our sponsors. In the Ring is brought to you by Adelphi Racing Club, which has had a tremendous 2023, led, of course, by Stakes Winning, Graded Stakes Place, New York Bread Philly, Funny How. There's never been a better time to be a partner. If you're looking for a collaborative horse experience that offers a fiscally sustainable approach to horse ownership, then Adelphi Racing is the right fit for you. They're not just another syndicate and members aren't just investors, they're partners. Contact Adelphi today to get a taste of the Adelphi experience and come hang out at the racetrack. All the ways to get in touch with Adelphi, you can check out AdelphiRacing.com, email Matt, M-A-T-T, at AdelphiRacing.com, or check out Adelphi Racing on social media, Adelphi underscore racing on Instagram and at Adelphi Club on Twitter. We also want to say a big thank you to Gainsway. We're thrilled to once again be partnered with Gainsway Farm for this year. Gainsway stands up and coming stallion McKinsey, who has already produced several six figure first crop weanlings, more than any uh, first crop sire. And at Keeneland January this year, McKinsey produced the two highest priced first crop yearlings at 250,000 and 220,000, well above the 145,000 Keeneland January sales average. Additionally, at Phasic Tipped in February, McKinsey had the highest priced first crop yearling at 200,000. It's been very well received throughout the summer yearling sales as well. Don't miss out on your opportunity. For more information, visit Gainsway. Dot com. All right, we'll get right into it. I hope that you enjoyed today's show. I had a lot of fun recording it. I'm going to be a little bit of the topics I teased in the open, a different type of sale. I'll leave you with that. We'll have our first guest on to explain it a little bit more in a moment. And then also talking about a special horse that is staying in training for 2024. And we'll get to see on the racetrack a lot more. So we'll get right to it on today's episode of In the Ring. I'm so happy to welcome in my next guest, um, a friend of mine and also somebody that uh, I always rely on for her expertise and will bring a little bit something different to the show in talking, yes, about breeding and sales, but in the world of standard breads and harness racing. So I'm so happy to welcome in Jessica Otten. Uh, she's the TV host at the Meadowlands. You may have seen her there or on our Fox Sports shows, but just so happy to have you on and get a chance to pick your brain on this side of your world a little bit. Thank you so much for having me. I always love, I always love talking horses. <laughs> as do I, as do I. Um, but first, you know, let's kind of start with your background because you've been a horseman at all levels, um, come from a family of horsemen and um, you've worked as a groom. Uh, you know, your your dad was breeder, driver, trainer, pretty much everything. So you, you really have a, a great experience of being close to the horses. Um, talk a little bit about your upbringing and how that brought you to where you are today. 
Uh, yeah. So I'm actually a third generation horseman uh, from Michigan. And now I live on the East Coast in New Jersey working at the Meadowlands. But from the day I think I could step in the barn or walk, I had a pitchfork in my hand. Uh, so I, I always loved the horses and loved being in the barn. I was fortunate enough to grow up on a farm with a half mile track and a nice big barn in my backyard. Uh, but what I really take credit to is like my dad made me learn everything from the bottom up. He made me, you know, learn how to clean a water bucket the proper way before I could clean a stall before I could get, you know, like a horse ready or something like that. So I really take a lot of pride in really learning the stuff from the bottom up. Uh, and I, I really appreciate my dad taking the time to teach me, you know, how to do things the right way and take your time and not cut corners. So I was a groom for him. Um, I think 10 years old, I started working for him. I got my first mm -hmm. groom's license in Ontario at 10. Uh, and then I owned horses and uh, worked for him all through high school and all through college, along with a couple of other people. And uh, I was in Indiana, or actually I was in Lexington, Kentucky uh, in 2018 when the general manager at the Meadowlands called me and asked me if I wanted to do a little bit of TV work here at the Meadowlands. And I was like, well, I'll think about it. And then uh, I thought about it and I said, I'll give it a shot. And uh, five years later, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and you're doing a great job with it too. And it was fun. I, I got to visit the Meadowlands a couple weeks ago for the first time. And um, it's cool. There's so many people that have known you since you were a little kid around the track yeah. and, and are so proud of you and what you've gotten to do too. And um, like with anything, I feel like the racetrack is a big dysfunctional family for sure. But, um, you know, growing up in it, that's, that's always kind of been your playground, so to speak. It, it really has. Um, you know, I wasn't like the typical you know, teenager. I always wanted to be at the racetrack. I wanted to be in the barn. I didn't care to, you know, always hang out with friends. I think like the last couple of years of high school, I decided, okay, Friday nights will be football games. But Saturday, I'm at the races uh, <laughs> or in the barn in the morning. But yeah, we're one big happy family, no matter what kind of what state you're in. Uh, I grew up in Michigan, but I lived in Indiana and Ohio. So I know a lot of people from there. And now I'm on the East Coast. So I feel like I have a lot of, uh, you know, good connections out here as well so I always like to think that we're a one big uh, dysfunctional happy family <laughs> <laughs> and, and how much does that experience and and what you've been able to do working hands-on with horses come into play um, with the job that you do now and even like you said with being able to own horses and just kind of having that knowledge whether it's equipment or reading a horse's body language or you know kind of understanding all of the things that go on behind the scenes I always find that that's such a big extra step to have the knowledge of and to be able to bring that into everything that, that we do on air. You know, I, I agree with you there because, you know, you walk through the grandstands and people are talking and, you know, they assume something and it's so hard because so many people are uneducated about, you know, what goes on. So I feel like it is a big advantage because I can stop and talk to them and tell them, you know, no, this isn't, you know, hurting them. This is what it's for. And then they understand mm -hmm. it a lot better. And even when you're on air, um, I feel like it's, it's another big advantage because I know the small equipment adjustments uh and why they help the horses or you know the shoeing or if a horse is washed out or you know the body language or scoring them down aggressively or, or something like that I just feel like it gives me not an edge but it, it helps me educate the people that are listening or watching or come up and ask me questions because you know uh, you know my dad trusted me with a stable when I was younger while he was still in Canada uh and I had to communicate with our drivers and then go home and you know tinker with stuff so I 
I feel like not a, it may be not an advantage to how I handicap races, but definitely I always say I love to educate people. I want them to know as much as they can so that they can enjoy it and maybe make a few dollars as well. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think it's so, so true. Um, and now since this show kind of focuses on the sales and breeding side of things, and um, you were kind of giving me a rundown of the sales season, and it seems like a lot of the big things happen in the fall um, for the sales, similar with the thoroughbreds as well. You see a lot of the big sales take place in the fall and kind of gearing up for next year. Um, can you give us kind of a rundown of maybe some of the important yearling sales and kind of how things work with people being able to restock for the next year coming up. Yeah, so in um, at the beginning of October, Lexington selected yearling sale is the first, you know, really big sale that we have. We have two big ones. The first one's in Lexington, and then uh, the most recent one was just in um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, so those are the two really big major sales that we have for yearlings, um, and they have all sorts of jurisdictions there. They have Ontario uh, sired horses, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, um, all at both of those sales. And then you kind of have your own jurisdiction uh, yearling sale. So Ontario runs a sale. It's the London Selected Sale. Uh, Goshen has a sale. Um, Ohio has a selected yearling sale. Indiana has a, a selected yearling sale. And uh, Michigan just brought back their yearling sales as well. So, uh, And then we have our mixed sales throughout the fall. And we have one in the spring uh, in Ohio. And a lot of times you see a lot of... Uh, Horses sell uh, sold online on OnGate or preferred online, um, but you, you know we buy our yearlings in the the fall and they get you know broke to the harness and the jog cart and they start putting miles under themselves uh, up until probably about February March and they start going some miles and in June they get you know, qualify and uh, then they start racing so it's a uh, it's hefty season for the two-year-olds, but it's uh, it's uh, it's so fun to watch, you know, go to the sales and watch them sell and then, you know, kind of keep your eye on the ones you like and then watch them qualify and race. Yeah, you, you see so much progression from them too, from the yearling sales onto their two-year-old season. And it was fun kind of, I was looking through um, the most recent sale in Harrisburg, the uh, catalog. And for those people that are listening that are maybe coming more from the thoroughbred world, if you look at the sales catalog, kind of the pedigree pages are almost identical to what you'd see in the thoroughbred world with having the pedigree, having kind of that black type of horses that were um, effective, especially at a higher level. But one thing that I always find is interesting in harness racing that the times are so important um, of how quickly a horse was able to race. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of look through the pedigrees and um, in the family and how that would impact what you might go for with a horse at a particular sale? Yeah, so I was always kind of taught, I mean, everybody looks for different things. Obviously, mm -hmm. you kind of want to find the diamond in the rough or, you know, uh, really find something that might slide through. But I was always taught that the second dam should have, you know, a strong family because now that we're having such a younger broodmare band, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they retire them after their three-year-old year and they don't, you know, get the chance to race against the older or, you know, um, go on and race longer. So I was always taught to see you know look at the, the dams and see the second dam have a, a nice strong family and then look at the 
um, previous, you know, sires that the dam was bred to. So I actually just bought a horse in the Harrisburg sale for uh, me and a partner back home in Michigan. And the uh, prior two dams or the prior two sires may have not have been uh, the best match for mm. that dam. So this time um, they bred her to a uh, Captain Tre uh, Treacherous um uh, Cool. So it was a Captain Crunch, uh, and she had been previously uh, bred to the Better's Delight side, um, and uh, they thought maybe that this was a sire upgrade. So you kind of pay attention mm -hmm. to that, uh, and you kind of have to know, like, the background of the first dam as well. Maybe they, you know, she got hurt training down or was never able to go to her full potential. So sometimes you kind of have to pay attention to the connections of them uh, and really just pay attention to it. That's on the pacing side. On the trotter side, I was always taught to make sure that they go back uh, four dams uh, with producing on them. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just, you know, kind of different the way you want to look at a catalog. And uh, of course, looking at the individual is important as well. That was going to be my next question. Obviously, pedigree is important, but sometimes, you know, there are outliers or sometimes horses that maybe have a superstar pedigree don't necessarily live up to that. What are some of the physical things that at a sale you would look for? And obviously for you uh, would be different from the thoroughbred side because you do have trotters and pacers, as you mentioned. Yeah, so a few things that my dad has always kind of taught me to pay attention to is when they bring the horse out, you know, the first thing I always thought was kind of weird until I asked, <laughs> asked the question was, you always, I always go up and pet them and you want them to have like an alert eye. You want them to be, you know, alert, not, not droopy, not almost not like sad looking, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, after that, you just look at the individual, the way he stands or she, the way they stand, um, looking at their feet their ankles, their pasterns. Uh, I always look for a pointed shoulder on the side. And, um, you know, I stick my hand into their in between their jaw bones to mm -hmm. make sure, uh, you know, it's it's wide enough there and feel their throat. Uh, and then just really look at the confirmation and the and the, uh, the individual itself um, and the way they say and the way they hold themselves. Uh, if they're, you know, if they they've got muscle on them already, I think a big part of, you know, sales these days, too, is um, the way that they've been worked before they go into the sale, too. So, you know, you don't want one that's, you know, maybe not as good looking or, uh, you know, kind of have a nice ass end on them type mm -hmm. thing. Uh, and a good and a good alert eye is just something I always like. As far as you also mentioned, you know, the different um, states and then and, and at some of the bigger sales, you'll have horses from all different states eligible, New Jersey eligible, Pennsylvania, whatever it might be. Um, can you talk a little bit about those programs, the, the uh, say, New Jersey sire eligible type of races that mm -hmm. you'll have an opportunity to go to? Is that something that you really pay attention to with whatever state you are based in when you're going to the sales looking at horses? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, a really big thing the last couple of years has been the dual eligibility. Um, mm -hmm. So Kentucky is, um, you know, on the uprise, they go for really good sire stake money, but they can be, you know, in New Jersey and Kentucky eligible. Uh, and that has all to do with where the mare is while uh, the baby is in her belly. So uh, I think that, you know, those horses go for a lot more money as well uh, because of the dual eligibility. So you can have New York and Kentucky, you can have New Jersey and Kentucky, Ohio and Kentucky, Indiana and Kentucky, PA and Kentucky. Uh, but each state has their own sire stakes program. A lot of them have an A and a B level. New Jersey only has one level, but like in Pennsylvania, for instance, instance they have the sire stake which is the top then they have the pa stallion series which is the mid-level they also have the pa all-stars 
which is kind of mid-level. And then they also have the FAIR program um, as well. And Ohio is the same way. They have a three-tier. They have the Ohio Sire Stakes, the Stallion Series, and then they have a FAIR level as well. So I think that's great opportunity, yeah. uh, you know, because uh, like I had mentioned, you know, you put so much pressure on these two-year-olds. As soon as you buy them, they get broke, they get trained down, and then you want them to race. And, you know, I'm they're, you know, race until the end of November sometimes. So uh, there's lots of money and opportunity to be made. Uh, like oh, Kentucky Sire Steak is kind of towards the middle to the end part of the year. But then you have the three tiers in Kentucky as well. So I think that's a, a lot to pay attention to is where, you know, the horse is eligible. And everybody has a, a sire um, preference too. So that kind of helps because each state stands their own sires. Sure, absolutely. And you always see, as you mentioned, uh, um, maybe some new and up-and-coming sires or ones that um, are are excited that you just recently saw them racing. Is there any um, kind of new sires that you feel like people are keeping an eye on or maybe ones that you have some interest in? Uh, I think a lot of people were really excited and are still really excited. Um, Tall Dark Stranger sold his first crop this mm -hmm. year, um, and so did Pappy Rob Hanover, and they raced uh, against each other their three-year-old season and didn't get to go on. Pappy Rob was actually injured, so he didn't finish his three-year-old season. But I think a lot of people are really excited for those. Uh, I didn't see one that didn't look good. They all looked like very nice individuals. They got very nice mares. Um, and I think, you know, the Tall Dark Stranger is nice because we kind of got away from that Sun Beach somewhere bloodline and into the um, Better's Delight bloodlines. I think a lot of people were excited about that. Um, and you know, this year Confederate is going to be standing sun after his last start next year. And I think a lot of people are really excited about that as well. A bulldog Hanover, of course, the fastest standard bread ever, uh, his babies will sell next year, uh, his first crop. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, you know, good that's come to the sire uh, part of it. Cause for a while we kind of had like the same, uh, same handful it kind of felt like um and now we're getting a lot of new bloodlines which is really great a sweet lou had a really really good year this year you know confederate it's my show um so we're really looking forward to it and anybody that uh, has watched the Fox Sports shows and we've gotten a chance to cover harness racing would recognize some of the horses that you mentioned. But I think even people that maybe don't necessarily follow harness racing um, got excited about Bulldog Hanover. And uh, I got a chance to cover him a handful of times, which was really special. I know um, you really got a chance to follow closely throughout his career. And I mean, I, I just thought it was really cool seeing how many people who weren't necessarily involved in harness racing or, or any type of racing we're excited about him how special is it having a horse like that having a big star that grabs so much attention i think it was really good for the sport of harness racing uh you know i was able to like you said cover a lot of his events but i also was able to travel and see the what he did for each and every individual mm -hmm. track uh like whether it was here, whether it was Lexington, Ohio, Indiana, uh, Mohawk for the Breeders' Crown, they were lined up on the fence ready to see him. And I think that it was so important for our sport to kind of get that fan base, um, you know, to the track. Everybody can, you know, sit at home and watch races via any simulcast or, you know, out uh, betting 
platform there is. But to get people to the track, just to see this individual, I think was so incredible. And the way he won races, he was such a polite horse just to be around. Everybody was able to take photos with them. And he always handled the media, you know, so well. And it was so great because he was able to be, you know, on the Fox shows and he was on local news stations. He was all over social media. So I think that was really cool just to have that fan base uh, kind of back at the track and people were just excited to see it. If you didn't know anything about harness racing or racing in general, you knew who Bulldog Hanover was. Yeah, it really is true. And it was fun. Um, like I said, when I was at the Meadowlands a couple of weeks ago with my parents, there's um, a, a big kind of um, statue um model i guess a bulldog handover when you walk in and my dad was like oh look bulldog handover let's take a picture you know which i thought was really cool um for somebody that that doesn't necessarily know a lot about harness racing is just kind of watched our shows but was following it and and i think it's every sport needs that kind of big star to make people excited I agree. And, you know, it was cool because uh, Flightline had such a tremendous mm-hmm. year, too. So it was kind of cool not to really compare, but kind of show people like there is that in harness racing, too. Or, you know, if you're in harness racing, look what Flightline has done. So it was really cool to have those two, you know, huge standout horses. And like I said, just to see that the excitement with people like when he broke the world record here at the Meadowlands, like it gave me chills. Yeah. Like the, the crowd went silent and then they cheered and it was like. The, the they just it just made you goosebumps it was it was the most incredible thing I've ever experienced it's such a cool horse I feel really privileged to have gotten to cover a small piece of his exciting career <laughs> um, and I know a lot of people feel that way too but um, there's been a lot of other really good horses um, like you said confederate having a really good year this year and um, I love what you said about always wanting to educate people to get people excited about it that's kind of been i think a, a lifelong passion it seems like for you and in, in being able to not just talk about the sport but to get more people into it yeah I, you know it's something i try to take a, a lot of pride in because even in michigan uh we would have you know colleges come out to the track or you know big groups of people and i always you know i want them to see the behind the scenes and how much work is really put into these horses it's just not a, a nine to five job a couple of days a week it's you know sun up to sundown yeah. um <laughs> it's it's late nights it's lots of travel it's lots of blood sweat and tears as somebody who's experienced it on the groom side uh, i want people you know i like to educate people and show people you know what it's all about. And I, I, you know, I just hate, you know, sometimes the negativity that comes with, you know, anything in this world, but some people are just, you know, they don't understand it. And they, you know, instant to blame, you know, the horse or the driver. And then, you know, I want to be there to be like, well, have you ever, you know, maybe the horse is having an off day. Like they're not, they're not push button cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's a lot of things that really go into having a a great day and stuff like that. So that's my, you know, my main goal. You know, I could care really less about how many winners I pick, but if I could give you know information about a handful of horses and people can take that into their own consideration and I can educate them and then they can make a few bucks is that's that's my main goal I I love hearing that um and you're so good at what you do and I look forward to our next show together and Jess thank you so much for taking the time today and um really really interesting stuff and I hope people got a chance to be educated a little bit today and learn a little bit more about uh, the world of harness racing thank you Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to our next show as well. I'm so happy to welcome in my next guest, Clint Cornett of C2 Racing. Of course, you've seen their silks a lot this year, in particular with Breeders' Cup Classic winner White Abario. But Clint, glad to have you on today. Um, first of all, let's just start looking back at what this year has been like, the journey that that horse has taken you on, and um, just the, the emotions of the roller coaster it's been. 
Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, Acacia. Uh, you know, st starting off the beginning of the year uh, in the Pegasus down at Gulfstream, you know, he, he didn't really run as we anticipated in that uh, as he started his uh, four-year-old campaign and gave him a little time off. He came back uh, in March and ran an allowance, ran, ran well, uh, you know, when he was with Safi. And then, you know, we, we, sh we shipped him up to Belmont and then we shipped him over to Churchill to run Kentucky Derby Day. And unfortunately, you know, due to the circumstances that, that we got tied up in there around Safi and Churchill, uh, he got scratched. So we sort of had to pivot and, uh, you know, really figure out what we wanted to do with the horse the remainder of his four-year-old campaign. And, you know, we had to make the trainer switch to, to Rick Dutro. And, you know, it really ended up being a, a great thing just from the perspective of how the horses ran uh, under Rick. He's done a great job with, you know, White Barrio. Uh, you know, we ran in the Met Mile, got a third, and turned back and ran in the uh, the Whitney and, and won that, you know, historical race, which mm. – you know, was great. You know, we, we really didn't plan on running in that. We were going into Orgo and just due to the short field, uh, we thought it, it might be a great opportunity for him. He won the Whitney so impressively and then carried that on into the Breeders' Cup as well. And there had always kind of been, you know, if he runs his Whitney, they're all running for second in the Breeders' Cup. And he did just that, capping off uh, the year you know, you always think about the Breeders' Cup as kind of the pinnacle of this sport and the classic, the pinnacle of that. You know, what's what's that feeling like? You know, those are races you dream about winning, right? And for it to become reality, it 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 really is unbelievable, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, we, we've been in, in the game for quite a while. Uh, you know, we were originally, Mark, my brother and I were originally in it in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, we ran under another stable Turf Express back then. We had over 400 wins, but we didn't have anything at this level, Acacia. And it, it just, it's really gratifying, you know, to uh, to get these types of wins. And and this is a special horse. I mean, he's been special to us since, you know, the day we bought, bought him. Uh, you know, we had an opportunity to talk to you after the Florida Derby yes. when he won the Florida <laughs> Derby, you know, down at, at Gulfstream. And uh, that really started, you know, the ride this horse has taken us on, you know, through his three-year-old campaign and now his fourth. Like you said, I mean, I, I'm one of the people that had the, the privilege of seeing him run as a three-year-old, and he was a private purchase for you guys, too. And going on to win some of the big three-year-old stakes down in Florida, especially the Florida Derby, can you tell me a little bit about the process of acquiring him, um, going through as a private purchase? Because as we know, there's all different avenues to acquire a horse and when you will buy in. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the story of how you came to get White Barrio? Yeah, absolutely. So my brother Mark was at Gulfstream and saw him break his maiden first time out. Uh, and he did a lot of things you don't typically see a two-year-old do. He, he broke out of the post position one, uh, broke real slow. And, uh, you know, he split horses at the quarter pole and then just drew off. I think he ended up winning his, his, his first race out by seven. Uh, so we contacted Carlos Perez, who was the trainer and owner of uh, White Barrio at that time, and, and worked out a deal and, and privately purchased them and uh, the majority interest in them. And then they, La Milagrosa Stable, who's our partner on White Barrio today, uh, you know, they stayed in for a small percentage uh, of him. 
And you mentioned running the stable with your brother, Mark, and I know that he's still very involved in the bloodstock side of things as well. Can you tell, uh, talk a little bit about your partnership and um, how you go about finding horses to run in your silks? Yeah, our program is primarily, we're looking for horses that have prelims themselves on the track or two-year-old in training. Uh, that's typically the basis of our program. Uh, you know, Mark is scouring the tracks every day, watching races and, and seeing if he sees anything. And, and if he does, then we'll, we'll try to, you know, purchase them privately. Uh, and we'll generally purchase, you know, five or six at the auctions as two-year-olds in training. Uh, you know, we haven't ventured into the breeding aspect of it yet. And that doesn't say, that doesn't mean we won't, uh, at some point, uh, you know, it's, I'll be honest with you, Casey, it's really been a whirlwind since we jumped in <laughs> late 21 sure. and, uh, you know, to, to win the Whitney, the, the Breeders' Cup Classic, I mean, you know, it's, your head's sort of spinning, right? And it's, it's really uh, been unbelievable. I can imagine. And uh, like you said, to have a, that whirlwind and you, you touched on the two-year-old and training sale, which can be a great opportunity to find horses that kind of have a little bit of a bottom underneath them already. You can kind of go right on to some of those two-year-old races throughout the spring and summer as well. What's kind of the process for those sales? You know, Mark, Mark will go to those generally uh, and then he'll, you know, evaluate the horses. He'll look at a lot of different horses uh, and then, you know, he'll consult consult with uh, our trainers at the, the sales as well. And, you know, we'll, we'll buy a mixture of Colts and, and Phillies. Uh, we bought, what did we buy? Five uh, at the OBS uh, sale that we went to. And, you know, we, we like horses that uh, have good movement, you know, good turn of foot, uh, look real athletic. Uh, we're not, you know, necessarily looking at, the pedigree per se, you know, it's, it's, can they run? Right. I mean, that, that's really, uh, really, you know, what we're looking for in a horse. I think why Barrio would kind of be a good example of that too. Like you said, you, you purchased him after he'd been running already, but by race day, um, a stallion that had really not gotten much buzz here in the United States. And he's really been kind of flying his flag and showing that a good horse really can come from anywhere. It really can. I mean, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to have that top line pedigree. Uh, I mean, I, I think like in anything, right. I mean, if they're athletic and they can run, then, then they have potential. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. We bought privately another one, uh, Oklahoma bred named nautical star that, uh, you know, is G2 place. That's uh, sire Dixie chatter. I mean, you know, I mean, so you just don't really know what you're going to get. And, and if you're trying to be fiscally responsible, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you can't go buy all the million dollar horses at the, the sales and, uh, you know, hit, hopefully you hit on one. I mean, that the economics just don't come together there. And it totally makes sense with that process as well. Now, I know that you guys had some experience, like you said, owning horses previously and kind of getting back into the game. Where did the, the love and the passion for racing begin? You know, when we were young, we used to, we, we grew up in Dallas and we uh, would head down to Louisiana Downs in Shreveport and go to the races all the time. And, you know, we just really fell in love with the sport. And, uh, you know, early 2000, we, uh, maybe late 90, 99, we bought our first horse. And, uh, you know, we had a nice stable up until about 2010. 
and then jumped out, focused on business, focused on family and other things like that. And then in, in 21, you know, I called Mark and I said, Hey, let, let's jump back in the game and, and see what we can do. So, uh, you know, I would say we hit the ground running. I would certainly say so. What is different about being an owner and having that experience versus just being a fan and um, especially with kind of managing a stable that's now had some success on the on the biggest stage? The adrenaline rush, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's funny when uh, after we won the, the classic, you know, it it all goes by so fast, yeah. you know, you try to absorb the moment. I mean, you've been in enough, you know, winter circles with owners, trainers and, and jockeys. You, it happens very fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember Brittany coming up to me saying, Hey, Clint, are you going to do the talking? And I was like, Brittany, I, I can't even really think right now. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it, it, it's, uh, you know, you, you try to take it all in and uh, it's just really, uh, you know, it makes you speechless in the moment, right? Because, you know, everyone in this sport is trying to win those races. And when it becomes reality, it's it's like it's not really true, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it, it just, it's really unbelievable, to be honest with you. And I saw, too, that uh, fortunately for fans of the game, that Wida Barrio has his sights set on some, some big races for next year as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the decision to, to keep going and pointing to some of those big races in 2024? Yeah, we're still, we're still evaluating what we want to do with it, you know, his campaign for uh, next year. And it's really undecided at this point. You know, we're either leaning towards the Saudi Cup uh late february or the pegasus at the gulf stream you know which is is really our home track you know mm -hmm. we would like to run there but you know i we really need to do what's best for the horse going forward so he could be successful as a as a five-year-old uh you know we want to hit like you just mentioned a lot of the big races you know i know you know we're, we're thinking you know met mile we're thinking mm -hmm. whitney again we're thinking breeders cup classic again so you know, I, I think probably by mid-December, mid we'll have a final plan in place. I think that's really exciting. And like I said, especially for fans and for a horse that ran such big races this year to have the opportunity to get a chance to see him again, I, I think is really special and exciting, especially for one who could potentially be a Horse of the Year finalist this year. Yeah, we're excited about that. I mean, you know, it, it, it really came out of nowhere. You know, I mean, he, he ran well as a three-year-old. He, he had uh, his ups and downs. And, you know, he had a pretty tough campaign there his three-year-old summer. He might have run, you know, one or two two uh, races too many. And uh, so we're trying to manage him better where, you know, he can be at the top of his game and, and more successful, you know, as he rolls into his five-year-old career. You mentioned doing right by the horse, and um, that's something that I've seen uh, from you guys that, that's really awesome, too, being, being willing to step up and help with aftercare. Can you talk a little bit about why that's something that's important to you as, as being owners in the game? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like in any business, there's good, bad, and the ugly, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we will always, number one, take care of our horses when they're, when they're done racing. But unfortunately, there are people that don't necessarily think that way. So, you know, early on, we committed to supporting some of the aftercare organizations. And one specifically, we uh, 
support on a regular basis is race fund. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they do a great job of finding horses, you know, that have really been left behind and, you know, they, they do a great job of scouring the country and, and finding these ex thoroughbreds. So, you know, anytime we can, we can help support, you know, their initiative. I mean, we, we definitely are going to do it. The whole team at Race Fund is, is fantastic and is somebody that spends a lot of time devoted to aftercare. Thank you for all that you do. I, I love to see it. I, I think that's so wonderful. And um, we, we've definitely made big strides in the industry. Like you said, you know, there's still a ways to go, but it, but it is really awesome to see how much uh, the conversation has come on the forefront of the sport too. Yeah, and it should be on the forefront. Mm -hmm. I mean, these animals give us so much, you know, I mean, the least we can do is get back and make sure they have, uh, you know, a happy and, and healthy life after they're off the track. So you won the Whitney, the, the Breeders' Cup Classic this year, two of the, the biggest dirt races in America, um, looking for potentially defending those titles next year. But as with anything, always looking uh, to have the next win and fill up the stable. So what are some of the plans and the goals for C2 Racing? You know, we're going to keep plugging away, keep looking for horses to buy. We've got a nice stable right now of about of about 20 horses. And, uh, you know, we we actually own White Barrio's half-brother, Cage Match, who's uh, a Gormley colt, the second foal out of the Mayor Catching Diamonds uh, by Empty Mischief. So he's currently uh, with Rick Dutrow, uh, training up to his first start. He uh, had a few setbacks uh, of when he was younger and, you know, he went to the farm for a while. So we're excited about what, what he's going to do. Yeah. We've got uh, some nice two-year-old Colts and some two-year-old fillies, Whiskey Park, a Nyquist Colt that's down with Safi at Gulfstream and a couple other uh, fillies down there as well. A Mystic Lake Philly, uh, Motown Philly that uh, she's a stakes place two-year-old filly. So she'll, She'll be uh, starting to run in the championship meet, you know, down at Gulfstream and some stakes races. And then and then we have Libin. I believe you saw Libin run. Uh, yes, uh, I mispronounced the name the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because uh, that, everyone mispronounces the name, so uh, that's okay. But, uh, you know, she's a, she's a, a three-year-old. She's a, only had three starts, a, a second first time out, and her last two she's won. So... Uh, she'll be running probably next weekend down at Gulfstream, and then she'll be running in some stakes uh, down during the championship meet at, at Gulfstream. So we, we like what we have thus far, and then we'll start going to some sales here uh, beginning of uh, next year and uh, see if we can't uh, find the next White Barrio. Mm -hmm. Uh, always a big goal for sure. And you mentioned not ruling out getting involved into the uh, breeding world as well. Is that something that could potentially be on the table for you guys in the future? Yeah, it could be. We've uh, we've had some some younger uh, fillies and a mare that you know couldn't run anymore. So we, I mean, honestly, we I gave them away and donated them, and you know, I two of them are in foal right now. So. Uh, you know, we, we might venture into the breeding of it. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to, me personally, Mark knows a lot about the breeding side of it, but, you know, starting to learn a lot more about it with, with White Barrio as a stallion. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, since I'm sure you can imagine since we won the Whitney, you know, the phone hadn't stopped ringing. <laughs> uh, you know, so it, we're, we're learning, you know, every day more about the breeding side of it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure at some point in the, in the near future, we'll, we'll probably be in, in that side of it as well. Yeah, definitely a, a different world from the racing side as well. But it, it does always fascinate me how all of the steps it takes to get a horse onto the racetrack and how the breeding world really is kind of so separate, but so vital to what happens on the track. And it seems the deeper you get into the racing side of things, the more you can't help but learn about what happens in the breeding corner. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we're learning more and more every day about about the breeding side of it. And uh, you're absolutely right about, you know, what happens on the racetrack, you know, it, it, it sort of draws you to the breeding side, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it just, it's, it's very fascinating, just the, all the different aspects of the business and, you know, people see the horses running on the track, but, you know, your general public doesn't necessarily understand what it takes to get a horse onto the track. For sure. All the people that make it possible along the way. Well, we are very excited to see White Abario uh, back on the track and I'm sure in the winner's circle as well next year. Um, Clint, congratulations on a a tremendous year with him. Best of luck with next year and, and thank you for taking the time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. See you soon. Thank you. And that'll do it for today. A big thank you to my guest, uh, Jessica Otten, a wealth of information. Hope you learned as much as I did uh, about the uh, world of sales and harness racing and uh, the different types of things that you look for, a lot of differences and similarities. And a big thank you as well to Clint Cornett and excited to see Wide Barrio on the big stage again next year in 2024. Thank you to Adelphi Racing Club and to Gainsway for making today's show possible. As always, if you have not subscribed to the in the money media newsletter you can do that on the in the money media website check out all of the great content uh, from all my peers over there there was a ton of fabulous stuff during the breeders cup and that doesn't stop uh, throughout the entire year there's always a lot of really fun things going on over there so be sure to check it out we back in a short time i have another episode coming up soon and hopefully we'll get that out to you quickly but thanks as always for joining me on today's episode of in the ring we'll see you next time